Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today we're joined by Andy Rains. How are you doing, Andy? Uh, hi, I'm very well, thank you. Awesome. As the audience probably know is I've kind of got into serverless stuff quite a lot recently. And one thing actually that I noticed a couple of days, well, a couple of weeks ago, sorry, was a Symphony meetup uh, video that came out. Sadly, I couldn't actually make the meetup, but it was very much in my headspace with uh, serverless and adding in PHP there. Uh, and it was from your good self, Andy. So I really appreciate that. It's really, it was a really interesting watch. Oh, well, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to help, glad to get more people sort of interested in the space. How did you actually get into serverless then? What drew you to it? So I think it was probably maybe a year and a half ago now, which I suppose in the grand scheme of things is probably pretty early on in, in terms of the serverless movement. Um, and it was something that came out of uh, looking around AWS, really, just poking around um, and came across this this concept of being able to, uh, yeah, have serverless compute power, which was just, uh, it, it blew my mind, really. And, and I was thinking of all the various possibilities and, and, and what I could do with it. And uh, and that just sort of got a little bit hooked on it and, and started playing around with everything I can, every opportunity I could. Uh, so that was, that, was, that was kind of the start of it for me. I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely in that camp now. Uh, anything you can serverless, you will serverless. It's, a, it's an addictive thing. So, so people who don't really know and kind of haven't seen this space, then what actually is this serverless architecture or this serverless movement? Okay, so I, I guess it, it's probably best described as being able to run sort of functions or software in the cloud where you're only paying for it on a very sort of small metered level. So I, I, there's, there's a, a number of providers out there, but I'm, I'm going to keep referring back to AWS because uh, that's the one I'm most familiar with. In that case, you get charged by the 100 milliseconds. So every 100 milliseconds that you're executing for, you get charged for. And then beyond that, you don't get charged at all. So you, you think about how computing can work for, say, a website or an API, which is where my background is in, in building a lot of APIs. It's, it, it's very request-based, which means that uh, you get a request in, you want to process that for a certain period of time, and then once you've produced the response and you've sent it, you're not really doing any work anymore. And so rather than having to have servers kicking around waiting for these requests to come in, uh, which you're paying for the whole time, instead you're only paying for what you actually use. I think the other big advantage of of, uh, of serverless or function as a service really is uh, around the idea that you can that, that it will scale on an event driven process. So when a, a request comes in, that's when your function kicks off and does all your processing. But if ten thousand came in at the same time, then ten thousand would be spawned and all execute, uh, and that means that really your scalability becomes. Well, almost infinite, really, which which is just a a, a really really powerful uh, thing when you start to think about it. Absolutely, and it completely changes the way you think and perceive, kind of designing these things. And and yeah, you're kind of you know what you feel is possible because, like you said, you know provisioning servers, having always up, you know always on servers, and you know it's the updates, it's all these things to do with having a server. It's you know actually having to set the server up to then manage that load expected load having to assume right how much load am i going to get on a day-to-day basis oh maybe black friday comes around and i'm going to have more load or something you know maybe there's going to be tra- high traffic times with this kind of you know abstraction you just don't really think about that and you fundamentally just think of you know a function as a service it's very much kind of like a pure you have to consider parallelism you have to consider you know it's itself that it could be working in parallel with other things and stuff it's a it's a really great way of thinking yeah yeah absolutely and, and i think actually if it feels quite constrained at first, particularly if you're used to having a server which is always there um, and you've got temporary space you can play with and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think those constraints are really powerful. They they actually start to make you think more about your architecture. Um, and for me, at least, has, has got me to the stage where um, even when I'm not working on, on serverless things, I'm still sort of working in that same mindset, which means I've got much more flexible and what I would consider better architecture out of it, uh, which which is really interesting as well. And actually, one of the things that from your talk, which I really enjoyed, was kind of you, at the beginning, you kind of gave a little bit of a history of how we got to serverless uh, and through these spaces. And it is actually quite interesting to kind of see 
especially like kind of it's only been around 20 years of kind of development of how we've kind of changed the way we you know work and from now we're at this very high level where we've got serverless but before that would it be all right if you maybe going through some of the history from like on-premise yeah so I, th- I think like you said about about 20 years ago um I, I guess we were all in the in the same boat of of having to actually get a physical server where we're looking after um everything about it the, you, you you sort of get one of these things and throw it in a data center maybe but you you Really, you had to look after like your storage and networking. You had to look after the servers themselves. You had to look after the operating system. And if it needed patching, you had to keep on top of all that security. Um, and then on top of that, you've got all the other things that you would normally have to look at, I guess, in, in modern cloud computing. You'd sort of take this for granted. But um, yeah, so then you get to your, like, your runtime. So you're looking at, well, I guess, PHP or Node or whatever your, your runtime is. You've still got to be looking after scaling as well like you've got one piece of tin one server sat in a room somewhere what happens if that runs out of uh, out of grunt you need a you need another piece of tin and it it was uh, that was kind of the way we worked i guess about yeah 15 20 years ago i guess from from there uh, it would be about 10 years ago now around 2007 i think was when aws really sort of cracked into the market uh, was when you started to get infrastructure as a service uh, and this is where the networking and the storage and all your hard drives and your servers even are all sort of taken away from you. You don't have to worry about them anymore. You let Amazon worry about that. um, And then you're still responsible for everything from the operating system up. So you still need to, you know, keep on top of security patches and things like that. But you you don't have to worry about the the lower level sort of infrastructure, I suppose. Uh, You you just get a virtual machine. And as far as you're concerned, it's a server which you can play with. And it's easy to spin them up and it's easy to throw them away. Um, So you start to get this rather than you looking after a a server and treating it as a pet you can instead just treat them as cattle you don't name them anymore you don't really care you can bring a new one in you get rid of an old one like it, it doesn't matter too much for you so that was a i would say a huge shift for for an awful lot of people going from the idea that you were looking after absolutely everything to looking after well a smaller domain of that i suppose so yeah that that's that's so yeah, you like your aws uh, google cloud uh, Microsoft as you are there's, there's, there's a, a good few of these they've all started now haven't they I think it all has spun up from the AWS hasn't it AWS EC2 really did kind of pioneer this movement and like the whole idea of like economy of scale and things because they're dealing with it at such a big scale they can give you these savings uh, and spinning up these boxes and stuff which you would never you know the compute power that you can just spin up for an hour you would never even perceive that you could even you know envision to actually be able to use uh, you know at you know at the point where it was an on-premise because you'd have to actually buy that stuff uh, and all the lead time for actually getting it, actually, you know, setting it up, provisioning it and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked in uh, in industries which were still working on this basis for, you know, one reason or another, where you say, well, we need some service in time for your sort of your, your, your Black Friday or, or similar event and say, well, OK, well, we, it, it's going to take us six months to get those services. So what do we need now? And, you know, you have to get all those costs signed off. And it's a huge upfront capital cost for for businesses as well. Um, to actually buy these servers and then, you know, give it a year or two, and you're going to need to replace them all because they're they're becoming obsolete. Um, it's it's an it's an incredibly like different world to just being able to say, oh, you know what, I want some servers in the next five minutes, and you can just press a button and away you go. It really empowers you, doesn't it? And the, the design and actually like the business strategies that you can do because of the fact that you have this kind of underlining, you know, infrastructure as a service. You're just not thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose in the in the grand scheme of things, yeah, maybe you could run your own infrastructure slightly cheaper than you can buy it from AWS. But like you say, the economies of scale are such that you'd be having to run an extremely lean operation to be able to even match that. But then they give you all of this, all of these benefits as well, which you just simply can't get by doing it yourself. That's it, exactly. And and it seems like every you know every revision that comes out, every new bill, every new like type instance type, they're always increasing speed and performance, but then actually reducing cost, which is just the most crazy way of looking at it. Where actually you know you get better performance for cheaper. Yeah, no, it, it is pretty incredible. And in fact, I've, we've been bitten by this in in some respects, where you can you can say to AWS, okay, well, I promise to buy. Uh, a year's worth of and you reserve the instance um, so you get it for a cheaper amount um, and then 
a month later, they say, oh, well, we've just updated all of our instances. And now it's these new instance types, which are more powerful and they cost you less. And you're like, ah, I'm sort of tied into the old one now. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so they, they have brought out that whole kind of, isn't it like that you can actually use some of those credits if it's on the same type, but then if it's a completely different type, then you are, you are unfortunately at the mercy of it. Yeah, there's, there's, there is some flexibility there. Um, and it's just really, I think For this is that reason. <laughs> where that, where that, like with the four, with the hindsight, you can kind of see how you can structure that in a way which is going to be really good for you. But uh, when you first start out, that's that's when you get burned and you sort of realise that <laughs> you've just uh, you've just uh, bumped some money in for something which uh, isn't quite as good as you thought it was going to be. No, I feel that pain. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, and if, so from infrastructure, then we kind of go even even the level up there and you get like the Heroku's, the platforms as a service. Yeah. Would you mind explaining kind of like what the differences are there? Yeah. So I think this is where you go from your infrastructure as a service to platform is where the operating system and the runtime has been taken away from you. So um, in Heroku's case, and, and there are other again, other providers out there, um, you, you basically you just select and say, well, I want to run a node app. Um, and you don't have to care about what operating system it's running out and all the security patching, that's all done for you. You don't really need to care about the runtime. You just expect they're going to be keeping you fairly up to date so that you keep with the you know the latest bug fixes and the latest security patches and so on. Um, so at that stage, the things you're responsible for are your application, which you want to be responsible for, um, and your data. Again, those are the, the sort of the two key things that your business really care about. And you're also responsible for the scaling still. So this is this is where platform of a service doesn't quite come to, to function as a service is, is on the scaling factor. So this is what I was alluding to earlier with, with the whole event-driven architecture. So with platform as a service, you're, you're scaling. You have to say, okay, well, I want one instance and that's going to look after my request for a while. And maybe you can configure some automated things in there to say, I'll scale up to two if the load gets too high or maybe three or four. But fundamentally, you're having to sort of decide that for yourself. And with all the will in the world, they're not going to spin up like if there's a huge spike, uh, you're not going to spin up quickly enough to cope with that spike. They'll sort of come in after the spike's already been and gone. Um, And we've certainly been burnt with that (laughs) a number of times in the past as well. So so that's that's really the, the, the last thing. Oh, and also that, even if you've got no traffic, you're typically going to be running something in the background there, which you're still paying for. That's it. Yeah, because it's it's the whole kind of their abstractions of dynamos and things like that, where you're still considering compute as kind of a bucket of like, how much stuff can you put into that bucket? And then you've got a couple of these buckets that you have to expand out on, as opposed to functions where everything's just an event and it is just scaling to inf- you know, infinity, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really nice way of putting it. So one thing is like, you know, you mentioned the cloud there and, and cloud gets thrown around a lot. But in all of these cases, like how has cloud computed helped Pioneer this you know, serverless, but also kind of all of these things? I suppose when you when you think about it, like what AWS have been, or at least what they say they've always been trying to do is to uh, give you as much as you can have and make everything as, as pay as you go as possible. And because because they've got such a vast scale, they can kind of deal with the load the loads shifting around between all of their customers uh, way better than you ever could. Um, and as they grow bigger and they sort of finesse this whole pay as you go model more and more, I, I guess really what they're doing is just taking you know their several million computers, I'm sure, uh, and, and just allowing the the ebbs and flows to sort of move around within their system, which doesn't really cost them anything to do. But it means that then they're driving some real value out to, to all their to all their customers, um, and I think without without that pooling of resource, that, that these kinds of things just could, couldn't really happen. Um, so I, I suspect that's that's really kind of the driver that's come behind it, sort of evolution based on yeah based on on this pooling. Yeah, it is fascinating, and like, it is interesting. I think like AWS came about from the actual the resources that Amazon did have back in the day with like Black Fridays and stuff, and that they thought, well, they might as well get some money out of it and allow other people to use it when they don't need to use it. Well, I think right, it, it's interesting because I think one of the first services they made public, if I remember rightly, was their Q service, the simple Q service uh, SQS, um, which. It's just like a really neat abstraction, which is very easy to use, and it's you know fairly low cost. Um, and 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 just from there, you know, they found that oh, that's quite popular. And then, well, we also manage all these servers, so why don't we give people virtualized instances and they can play with those? And and it's it's, it's crazy to think that uh, that a book retailer could have got 
from, from yeah. <laughs> doing that to being like the world's biggest uh, uh, cloud computing service. And like really profitable as well. Like, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like it is very profitable and very like, I mean, every year they reinvent. Just remind me now of Apple launches, you know, the way that things are just released and stuff. It's just become a, a developer, you know, love fest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do find myself on that, you know, with my fanboy cap on a little bit as well. I must have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard not to. And and then from there, actually, because it's, it's very interesting, because when I looked at serverless, I always, you know, was thinking of, you know, the function as a service and things like that. And, you know, obviously you look into cloud offerings and cloud computing and you've realized like the SQSs of the world and things like Cognito for authentication and ortho and stuff like that. It's actually interesting that they're actually split up. And I, I didn't really kind of think of this where you've got the back end as a service and then function as a service. And they're both kind of melded into this serverless world where you're just trying, you know, like the use of rich applications and stuff, rich client applications. SPAs and stuff. You're trying to get away from having to write code in the case of backend as a service, or you're stitching together a couple of like pre-made components from all these different third parties, uh, and it's just this idea of like reduced development costs. Yeah, it's. It, I, I think this is this is something else which gets sort of quite confusing in this space is what serverless actually means because it seems to mean different things to different people. Um, and I think for me personally, my definition has probably shifted even over the last few months. Certainly, when I got into it and I'm talking about serverless, I was always thinking of function as a service, um, you know, AWS Lambda. But over time, I've, I've, I guess, I've come to realize that actually, it's it's anything where you don't really have to think of the infrastructure. But I think there's a there's another point that I would put in there, which is that if you're not using it, you shouldn't be paying for it. Um, and for me, I think that's an important factor. So if uh, yeah, so a lot of these backend as a service uh, models, you. Well, actually, some of them you are literally only paying if you use them, but others you will be paying some kind of service rate under under the hood as well. So it's 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 a little bit tricky to to know exactly how to define these things. But, uh, but yeah, there's I, I don't know. Have you got any any sort of thoughts on that? No, no. I think I actually I really like your thinking there behind that. You know, it is the cost. I think you know what is one of the most influential things about this is the cost model. Like, how can you start to use this in a real life application? Is the fact that it's viable cost wise to do so. The reason why you're actually able to you know expand out and have this scalability is the fact that you only are running, you only are paying for what you actually use, and it's it's very hard to perceive again with this always on kind of architectures that we had provision servers. We have to think of contracts with like services and stuff where AWS with the cloud computing they've done, you know, Cognito, you pay for only what you use out of it, the request, CloudFront, Cloud, you know, S3. I suppose you're paying there for like storage of, of objects and stuff, but you are only paying for like requests and things going in and out. It's what you use is what you have to pay. And it does, it does completely change the way you can architect a, a system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and the S3 one is, is an interesting one because you say you're paying for storage. I think there's um, where I would kind of like allow my definition to drift slightly is uh, whereas I, I probably would consider S3 as serverless um, because you don't have to care about the scale that just magically can do whatever you throw at it. And if you are using, say, 10 gigabytes and then you suddenly drop it to 5 gigabytes, you're only then paying for those five. It's not like you're having to buy it in chunks like you would a hard disk or something like that. So th- there is still an element of that sort of pay as you go to it, even though obviously storage kind of has to hang around. So I guess you do have to pay for it. Yeah, I suppose you could kind of conceive like, you know, storage is a is a use of like a function running constantly. Uh, so, you know, you could kind of conceive it as, you know, you are only scaling up and down as you, you want, but, you know, that storage has to stay there. But you are only paying for what you need. You're not having to reserve 10 gigabytes and only use five. You are only having to pay for five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously, you know, function as a service comes about and designing for function as service. How has it changed? You mentioned that it did change, has changed the way you kind of think in general, but like, how have you actually been able to incorporate this into, you know, personal projects and actually, you know, into production? Um, yeah. So I think the the big thing to, to think about it and, and with building APIs a lot, I have been sort of aware of the whole 12 factor app thing for a, for a little while and been trying to bring... Uh, any projects that I've been working on sort of closer to that 12-factor ideal, which actually once you start to do that and you're thinking, you know, everything is stateless and uh, and it's you can't have anything which lives outside the lifetime of the request as far as that sort of compute power is concerned at least. You know, you can shift that off onto another service to do your, your data storage, either, you know, S3 or, or a database or something. Once you start to think about it like that and and you realize your application is essentially kind of ephemeral, is once you've got to that stage, that's really, really powerful. And then 
when you're building new applications, even if they are like your your standard sort of always on monolith or whatever, as long as you're still actually following those rules, you get a lot of benefits. For example, like logging, rather than logging to a local disk on that server, which you then need to start monitoring for how full the disk gets and how do you ship your logs away and how do you look after all that stuff. If you just say, well, from the start, I'm not going to log to this server, the log it, logging is another problem. It's another sort of component. So the, all my logs will just flow directly out to that component. You've sort of gained that uh, that flexibility of architecture and, you, and you've just removed a load of responsibilities you need to care about. And so, yeah, it's it's uh, those are the kinds of things that I think have, have kind of come out of me playing around with uh, with Lambda in particular. I, I do find it interesting because I'm very much interested in functional programming stuff and been for quite some time. And the idea of immutability just seems to kind of the, the magnifying glass, you know, you can kind of really kind of put the lens on a lot of different things you know where you're looking at code you know immutable code is a lot easier to reason about and then actually when you go up to the server level and it's even kind of now looking into provisioning boxes and stuff and looking at immutable servers and like immutable applications like the whole concept of just immutability really makes things simpler uh, and you know you mentioned there with logging you know you're trying to make the actual application code the server code immutable and the side effects are happening somewhere else where you don't have to deal with it and you can scale as and when because of the fact the immutability is there Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is a, that is a really, uh, you put it a lot better than I did. That's a really important point of, 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 of this whole thing. It's just, inter- it is so interesting that immutability is just, especially as developers, you know, we've been very much kind of in this side effecty world where we're constantly changing references and stuff. And even just looking at a server and the fact of logs is a side effect where, oh, great. Now in logs, I've got to deal with this. You know, it's not immutable server. It's uh, more of a snowflake now, maybe, or it's more of a Phoenix server where things can change a little bit. If you just consider things as immutable snapshots, and that's one thing, you know, the infrastructure as a service gives you and containers and things like that, where you can just go back to a state. And if you only you know, you very much restrict yourself that you can't do things. Like, I mean, we'll mention in a minute, you know, like with function as a service, like the statelessness of it. But if you really take that, you know, and take that and, and embrace that, your your development and your architecture doesn't get halted. I don't think it impedes your, you know, your development. I think it just it, it increases it and it changes the way you think about it for the better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually, uh, this, is, this is one of these things like constraints. Um, a lot of people feel constrained by them, I suppose. But the the constraints can be extremely valuable uh, if they're the right ones. And I think it, it means you become a lot more, um, it, it means you think differently. It forces you to think differently. And when you start to think a little bit differently, you come up with some really interesting solutions. Uh, and then you start to see how powerful those can be. And immutability as a as a concept has obviously been around for a long time. And it's it's interesting. I, I suspect this is uh, is probably sort of a cycles in popularity <laughs> for, with, with various different reasons over, over time. But um, yeah, it's it's a really, really powerful idea. And those constraints, which initially feel like like it's, it's making it not as useful, actually in the longer term can really promote uh, good practices. Everyone's been burnt by a refer- you know, reference problem in a bit of code, and everyone's been burnt by a Snowflake server where you, oh, don't touch that server. It's, you know, it, we don't know how it got to this state, but it's magically going to stay there and it's going to work as it should. Yeah, yeah, been, been there. <laughs> been there <more> time. <laughs> this is it. And that's, you know, on the on-premise stuff where you never really, you know, the fact that you can tear up and down infrastructure as and when you want in like these, you know, you mentioned the cattle and the pet thing. If you have a pet, you're nurturing it. You slowly get to this state with an application where you've changed the configuration files and you've kind of upgraded this and you had to while you upgraded that change this little bit here but you don't document that the, the thing about phoenix servers obviously makes it better where you stop you know tearing it down and you're able to build up with things like puppet and things but you know to get to immutable servers where you essentially are just snapshotting this is deploy release it done it's just yeah it's a great way of thinking yeah it is it is i think the, the interesting thing about containers and, and that whole uh, or snapshots in general just just this that immutability is that somehow you've got to be able to build those in the first place and i think there's a real danger that a lot of people end up having sort of snowflakes which they become snapshots which is sort of okay but it it doesn't really fundamentally solve the problem of if you somehow lost that uh, that sort of snowflake which you're taking snapshots from you have no idea how to rebuild it um and so so there's there is there is an element of uh, of me who's which is thinking you know actually things like puppet and chef to build docker containers you know is that is maybe that's a good idea because at least you can programmatically rebuild them then. 
That's it. Yeah, you can then do the Phoenix model of it. And I, I agree with you there. I think people may try and skip out the definition phase and be like, well, it's easier for me just to snapshot this snowflake and I can go around it. But you're right. You haven't got a clear, concise definition of what that actual service, that application entails. It's, you know, not been codified. You have, you know, you've just manually done these things on it. So it's not, in my mind, an immutable server in the right sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah, completely. And then, so yeah, moving back onto function as a service that we mentioned their constraints and there are actually a lot of constraints with function as a service. Would it be for, you know, right to maybe go into some of these? You mentioned like, you know, it's a very much an event driven model and it's stateless. What, what other things are there? I have a, I have a funny feeling and I can't quite remember now that AWS might have very recently changed this at reInvent, but um, another, another one from, from Lambda is a five minute execution time limit. So you can't just have these things running for hours and hours and hours you know, they, they get event driven, which starts them up and then they're going to last for a certain amount of time. And if you hit that limit, then they just get killed off um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and whilst that, that might seem quite, again, constraining, it doesn't, I don't think it is. It just means that you have to think about your architecture in a slightly. You have to break up that service, break up that, you know, responsibility, because should something have to run for five minutes? Is, is it right to be running for five minutes? And if it is, maybe you do then have to move it onto its own dedicated, you know, systems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are going to be, there are going to be problems which can't be solved <laughs> with, within an event-driven way or not very, not very elegantly anyway. So it's definitely not right for everything, but that that is something which, as long as you sort of think about it and make sure that you you really do need it to last forever, then fine, I'm okay with that. But usually you can find a way of, of it actually just sort of pinging up to do a little bit of processing and then going away and then another event can start it up to pick up from where it left off uh, and that kind of thing. So I think that's 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 one of the, one of the other uh, big ones. That's it. Because, you know, with it being stateless, with the fact that you can't, in containers, you know, you can't just put a bit of the state on the server and then be like, I'll pick that up later on. You have to really consider, you know, third parties, again, with the logging, where it's like, I'm not going to log onto the server, I'm going to log somewhere else. And it's the same with, I'm not going to store on this, you know, in this container, in this service, this function, I'm going to store it somewhere else. And it's a breaking up, maybe that execution of five minutes, okay, maybe you need to have something that runs 10 minutes or has to, you know, do a lot of different things or break it up into its individual responsibilities and use things like SQS, and you know these other you know means of being able to get the events and compose them together it's it just just it helps your design yeah and i think it, it really just reflects um what has been good programming practice for a long long time which is if you're doing object-oriented programming certainly you don't want to be really using inheritance to to get behavior you like composition is is an awful lot more powerful um, and you're just relying on components and splitting it into single responsibilities uh, and all that kind of thing and that's 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 really what you're doing, but more at a, I guess, an infrastructure level. You're using different components rather than it all being sat within your same code base. You're just sort of spreading these things and, and connecting them together to make a more powerful whole where each individual thing is really easy to reason about and really easy to understand. And then you can build these really complex systems which, uh, which do the right thing. Dare I say microservices, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring in that word. Let's bring in that buzzword. We've got serverless in there. We've got to bring microservices in there. <laughs> I think it's, it's whether, yeah, whether we, we take function of a service and call it a microservice or whether they're nano services, I've heard people like, kicking that idea around. Um, I think that's another very... Uh, broad. You're probably a suite of function as a service, like kind of a, you know a composition of a couple, maybe. Yeah. You know yeah. where you've got a bundle of them. I think that that's the way I've been I've been talking about it when I when I'm you know I'm talking to other people and describing some of the things I've built. That that tends to be the thing. It'll be like four or five of these things, which are all trying to do a common, I guess, service uh, thing, but each of them individually are running separately. So yeah. One of the typical things, you mentioned APIs there, actually, and that is interesting, is, you know, people will want to use these things for, you say, events. And I think one thing around, you know, I've realized with Lambda and with Function as a Service and all these providers is a good provider provides a lot of event input, a lot of event triggers and a lot of event outputs, you know, side effects that you can do. Uh, it's kind of pointless having a function as a service if you can't actually interact with it that well. Uh, and that's one thing that AWS has done. And I, uh, you know, again, bringing up AWS, it's the one I'm as familiar with as, as well, you know, where you've got like S3 bindings and things like that. You All these different things it can do. It can do things on Cognito. It can do things based on Dynamo. It can do things based on API gateways. And HTTP is obviously a main one. Kind of what is then API gateway, uh, like that concept of HTTP? 
Yeah. Okay. So, so it's. I think it's really important to bear in mind that these function as a services are just they take some input and return some output. They they don't really know the the wider context from from what they are. They really are just a function. So they don't understand or they shouldn't understand HTTP. Uh, so API Gateway is is really a way of taking HTTP requests, pr- doing some routing on there uh, to route it to the correct function. Uh, and then passing on the information to that function to be executed, it'll retrieve the response from the function and then sort of convert that back into an HTTP uh, compatible language, which it can then respond with. Um, and it can deal with the connections and it can deal with like actually, yeah, talking HTTP to, to clients. And it means also, you know, these functions then can scale like certain routes in that in your HTTP requests may get more traffic than others. And you can then expand and contract in that way as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like I, I mentioned um, at the start, you know, you get 10,000 requests all going into your, I don't know, user login, uh, which is all going to be the same function. It, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, API API Gateway is going to handle that traffic for you because that also has this sort of infinite scalability uh, property to it. Um, pass it all through to the same function, which will presumably fire up like you know, 10,000 of these uh, these instances all at the same time, they, they run, they do their business, and then they shut down and they've gone away. Um, and it, yeah, it's a, it, it just allows you to build APIs or even websites, I suppose, without having to yeah, kind of deal with the, the HTTP end of things. Yeah, and actually, there's one thing, only the, probably the last week or so, more I've been exploring kind of API Gateway, quite a few kind of projects that are going about where they're able to kind of encapsulate maybe an express application or something in the Node.js world, or, you know, kind of like your, your general framework, like, say, like a Symfony 2 or, you know, Symfony application and stuff, and really kind of just put that in a serverless context. And I'm just wondering, like, is that in the right vein of a function as a service, you know, would it be breaking up that into different, you know, micro kind of services maybe, as opposed to kind of bringing in your whole application and just plonking it into one function as a service with an API gateway route of a wildcard catch-all? Yeah, I think this is this is one of those things which um, my first instinct was like, brilliant, let's get this monolith and just... Yep, that was me. Right <laughs> into Lambda, like, you know, jobs are good. And um, I think that is somewhat of an abuse of the of the uh, of the architecture and, and and the capability there i'm not saying it's not possible to do and it, in in some cases like you you have this thing with you're not going to break it up in just you know stop every all development on it and break it up and re-architect it just for the sake of getting it running on lambda i mean maybe you will but it, it seems like a, a possible it'd be better to refactor over time yeah exactly um so so really you if you can get sort of 50 percent of the benefit by this hack i suppose uh, then why not um and and with api gateway you can as you say you can instead of it doing all the routing and routing to appropriate functions you can just say you know what, just route everything through to this function and the function will take over and deal with the routing itself, which is, which is entirely possible to do. Uh, I, I, yeah, like I say, I just, I, I think it's sort of not quite in the spirit of, uh, of, of the whole thing. I think but it's interesting because it's for me, you know, like I went, it was the exact same where I'm like, brilliant, I could just chuck this in now. And, you know, it's just we're running for what we get, you know, we're running for what we actually use. But you're right. It's not in the the vein of what a function as a service is. And I've seen like a couple of these kind of contain like encapsulations that encapsulate Express. And they say, you don't have to worry about serverless. And we'll just it's like, well, actually, you want to embrace this model if, you, if you're kind of not embracing it you're but i can understand you know if you want to bring things over and slowly refactor stuff then it's great that you can actually do this like being able to actually go there because changing it from the off just isn't a possibility for a lot of applications and the fact to be able to reuse components and stuff and reuse the languages that you're used to and it is just code and you know testing you can still unit test you can still do testing that way i think you know when it gets to like integration test it can get a little bit more fiddly but you know, being able to actually do it both ways and kind of slowly move over to what function as a service really means it, it is a great thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it. It's that once you, by, by having your sort of express running on Lambda or whatever, you, you're you not uh, exposed to those same constraints. Um, and like I was saying, those constraints are what change your mindset and what make you realize how you can uh, actually build things in a really, really cool way. Um, so in a scalable way, because I'm, a, yeah. you know, I'm guessing, you know, you can't really still scale in this way because you're considering things with state maybe internally with, within it requests and stuff and sharing it between. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's the danger as well that like by chucking, I mean, I, I've not played with the Express one, but um, you know, by chucking any old framework at it, it might be that those frameworks are expecting to be able to write to temporary storage 
um, and expect that to last more than one request and all these kinds of things. A lot of assumptions have been made in a lot of these frameworks because well, because of how prevalent monolithic structures and even microservices, which are always on, have been for such a long time. And so it's not really the fault of the frameworks, but um, those those assumptions are sort of baked in and, and you might end up uh, getting bitten by a few of them if, you, if you're not too careful. Yeah, it's just a completely different paradigm. And it is interesting, you know, because you mentioned that the 12 factor app and the fact of statelessness there. Um, but one thing you can kind of slowly, you know, you can kind of go like having this kind of baked in even caching or maybe like caches that are generated because of requests that have occurred in the in the past and stuff you know you can kind of be like oh yeah you know it's fine to have a little bit of a cache but obviously in the case of function as a service i mean it's truthful that you really cannot expect that this you know there's going to be a hot cache you know you're going to have to generate everything and you are going to have to bring the cache with you if you want to actually run that yeah yeah absolutely and i think there's a you know when it comes to uh, a lot of caching what it really means is don't store it to your local disk anymore. You need to push it off onto memcache or Redis or even to a data store of some description. Um, you know that that's that's what you're sort of forced to do uh, to make this work nicely. Or if it's if it's code, like you say, um, I mean, like Symphony uh, is a good example where uh, on first run it'll build like a big set of, uh, of cached PHP files uh, so that its performance is better um, afterwards. Now those you have to bake into the to the to the function into the into the lambda. Um, so what, really, what that means is you need to be on your local machine, uh, build that cache, uh, and get all the files onto your file system, and then you zip them up and send it off to to be run in lambda so that they're ready and don't need to be changed. And I'm sure it's not environment specific uh, with uh, if it's on a Mac or Windows or something, and you need to make sure it targets Linux or the Amazon AMI. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, actually, that's one thing, you know, mentioning like function as service. So like, underlining kind of like, how do the platforms typically host this? I think it's always interesting to kind of understand at even just a high level of kind of how they're getting away with this, because it does feel a little bit like magic that they can just run this thing and scale it out as much as they want. Yeah. Uh, no, it is magic. <laughs> <laughs> it's all magic. <laughs> um, no. So, so I, I mean, this is my understanding and maybe I'll you know, maybe I'll get some uh, some angry emails or something, but uh, but yeah, I, th- I think under the hood, really, they're just uh, using something similar to Docker. You know, uh, containers certainly, uh, where your code is sort of sent up, it gets turned into into a container, uh, and then as requests come in, you can spin these up quickly, let them execute, and actually, in, in AWS's case, they don't die off straight away. So this is, whilst you always need to think of them as being like they're killed off after every request, in, in reality, they do hang around for a little while. Um, and that's kind of to uh, improve the next request's performance, if you like. Um, so your first time, you're, you're going to pay a bigger penalty for starting this thing up because you're going to get the whole container going. Um, and then if it just sort of hangs around on the off chance that there's going to be another request, uh, next time it can just execute straight away. So what you, what you find is that, you, oh, I should say, you're not paying for that. Uh, that's all sort of handled for you. You don't have any control over it. But what, what you do find is that you get these, well, what everyone refers to as cold starts, which is where, uh, you, you know, there's nothing there and the docker or container has to get started. Um, and then after that, you are on warm starts where there's something already ready for you. Um, and if you think about the way that, what that really means is that if you have one request per second coming in and that's keeping one sort of container busy, uh, then if you suddenly get another request in, it, it's not like that first container can can cope with it anymore because it's already busy. So that means you get another cold start when the second request comes in um, to to deal with it. So that that's that, that's kind of how how it's behaving at least. You know, obviously the cold starts, and I suppose you know in that case it's the application and the actual infrastructure and languages that you're using, like booting up the JVM every time, definitely will impede more of a cost than maybe a smaller scripting language like a Node.js application. Yeah, yeah. And and when you look around at, I guess we'll come on to this, but all the various sort of shims that people have, have built, uh, they tend to be based on uh, either Python or, or Node because their their sort of startup execution times are so much quicker mm-hmm. than the JVM or, uh, or sort of a C-sharp environment. Because you get like, I know that moving on, like actually, you know, we're looking in serverless framework and there's like, there's a lot of plugins to do with like stir, like serverless warmups and things. And they're kind of little hacks where it is really an implementation detail, isn't it? That you know, it's going to be around for a little longer than you expect. So what you're going to do is you're going to be like, I know that if I just keep calling this a- action every so often, I'm just going to keep it 
keep it hot, you know, in the implementation detail. Like you shouldn't really be expecting the fact that it should be there, but it's just a performance boost because of the fact that you know under the hood it's actually doing that. Yeah, yeah. And this was really, um, I think early on with with Lambda, this was something that everyone started doing. They'd, they'd set up a CloudWatch event, uh, which would fire every five minutes or every two minutes or something, just to sort of ping the the your Lambda and, and, and keep it warm. How much, how much do you think Amazon hates that? I'm just thinking kind of like, you know, the fact that you, you're just pinging it just for the fact that you want to keep it warm to ensure that maybe some traffic will come. Well, but I don't know. I don't think they, I, I don't see why they would care. At the end of the day, you're, you're paying for the CloudWatch event and you're paying for the execution yeah. time. So it's, it, it might as well be another request as far as they're concerned. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And it's, I suppose it's just, you know, the fact that they're then having to keep it around and you're really kind of like, they only keep it around for 10 minutes just in case, but then you're taking advantage of that 10 minutes or five minutes and you're just kind of consistently just keeping it going. Yeah, yeah. So like I say, this was this was something which used to be much more of a problem. And then um, I guess maybe it was about a year ago now, they they made some improvements so that so that the, the, the whole cold start penalty was nowhere near as high as it used to be. Um, so it's it's less necessary to do that kind of thing now. But if, you're, if performance is really, really key, then maybe you still want to do it. But um, I think this is just another one of those constraints which, you know, you, you should be trying to find a way of, making that latency not as important like i know that's not going to fit for every purpose but uh, for a lot of things you know costing another few milliseconds here or there is not really the end of the world um and overall it just it just means the whole thing's a bit simpler no absolutely again it's a design consideration and constraint that you kind of have to work around yeah yeah uh, and then you know mentioning kind of with the function as service and all these things you know your vendor you're, you're kind of vendor specific uh, and you'll you know have this whole scary thing of kind of concept of vendor lock-in you only rely on the fact that you're using aws or you're using you know, other platforms that function as a service there's frameworks out there now like serverless framework which try and abstract away some of this you know where it allows you to kind of write in a higher abstraction where it can then compile down and do its own things to do like the you know the cloud formation scripts or set up azure for you and things like that I'm just wondering kind of like what's your experience when we've used in serverless framework? Yeah, so serverless framework, um, and, and there are, other, again, there are other projects, but this one seems to be the most popular. Um, it's got the name serverless. So <laughs> it's serverless.com. It really has kind of one out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I can't remember what it's, oh, I think it was called JAWS originally because it was a JavaScript only, like JavaScript on AWS. Ah. Um, but yeah, they changed the name when they sort of expanded it out to different languages and then realized they could support different cloud providers as well, which I suppose is the, the point of your question. But they, I think what what they recommend is, and and really this is a good practice anyway, is that your code should be provider agnostic as in you just don't care how you're getting executed with the exception of the very sort of first bit, the entry point, which is going to look different for each provider. Um, so when your your method gets called, it's going to have a certain signature, which you'll have to abide by because that's just the way it works. So if you keep that really, really thin, so the first thing it does is just call off to the rest of your code um, and then it returns whatever the rest of the code returns, then or maybe with a bit of transformation, that will keep you fairly provider sort of free. So you don't get too locked in. There's obviously going to be a little bit of work to move from one to the other, but that's, I mean, that's the case with pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, as long as, you, as long as you do that, you're okay. The other thing is, is that serverless framework isn't just about deploying your piece of code. It's about setting up everything around that. So like looking after which events trigger it and which services are going to exist and which buckets in S3 are going to be around and all this kind of thing. Um, and for the vast majority of tasks, it's really good at abstracting that because you can just describe it in YAML and then it goes and deals with that for you on the service provider for you, creating all this thing and linking it all together. For more complex or more provider-specific things where you know the serverless framework doesn't have the ability to do this built in, you, you're going to have to start to reach for a bit of cloud formation or, or similar to, to kind of help tie things together, which, which is a a bit of a downside. I suspect over time that's going to kind of ebb away. Uh, the serverless framework moves at a frightening pace. Uh, and it's just incredible how much stuff the the, the community is adding uh, in and around that. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things which I think over time is, is going to become uh, less and less problematic. But ultimately, each cloud provider does offer slightly different services. And you know, if you, if you need some kind of big data compute from, from Google or uh, you want some elastic transcoding from from Amazon or something like that. You know, they are specific things which only those providers give you. So, uh, so there's always going to be a little bit of make your bed and sleep in it. But 
I think, yeah, I think that is what we've recently moved actually from like kind of having servers on-premise stuff really kind of, you know, where we did have a little bit of AWS and a little bit of kind of virtualization, but moving and kind of, you know, making our bed in AWS and you really have to kind of weigh up the pros and cons. And it's like, would you prefer to take advantage of them? Are you going to get more benefits out of using their services and taking advantage of their services than trying to be agnostic and away from them? You know, vendor locking is always that scary thing that everyone kind of screams about, but you do sometimes have to have give and take on certain bits. And you're right, you know, saying, you know, like having this very small level, you know, your delivery has a very thin layer that is able to just translate between that is great. Just as a good design principle, you know, just having your packages that are agnostic of anything really, that are clean code that you can do unit tests and everything and don't require and all these, you know, external third-party dependencies. It's just very good architectural patterns anyway. But having the vendor lock-in with, you know, saying that like you're using S3s and you're relying on the fact of that, I think you just kind of sometimes have to, embrace that a little bit which is horrible to think but you just kind of do have to if you if you want to take advantage of it and reap the rewards you really have to kind of just yeah embrace that yeah yeah absolutely and there is a you know there's a there's a cost to everything there's a, there's a cost to staying agnostic and there's a cost to to vendor lock it i'm sure um was it was it pars uh, which which so, sort of suddenly decided they were turning off all their services yes uh, <laughs> but they released it didn't they so you can host your own yeah, it's not really a it's not, no, really, not the same type of thing now. It's kind of hang on, I'm now owning your code. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, I went from this thing which was really handy because I didn't have to do anything to oh, now I have to actually look after it and I have no power to sort it out. Like, yeah, that that that's I think that's that a really great example of when vendor locking looks very very scary and I I can see why why people get, you know, quite 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 het up about it, but it's it's I, I suppose at the end of the day like if PARS hadn't been around doing what it was doing, those apps that were reliant on it wouldn't have got off the ground because there was there was no other way to do it. Um, so they could have spent loads and loads of their time developing the same backend services and everyone's reinventing the wheel. Or you can concentrate on the thing that's giving you business value today um, and giving your users that value as well. Like ultimately, you're building things to give to users of some description, you know, and make them happy. Um, so the quicker you can do that and the quicker you can deliver value to them, the, the, the better, you know. And if that means you are taking a bit of risk when it comes to vendor lock-in, then I, I think that's a risk which you need to evaluate, but is, you know, generally worth taking. Um, as long as you've got a sort of <laughs> maybe in the back of your mind a, a get-out-of-jail card, you know. What, what happens if tomorrow AWS sort of goes, oh, well, we've got six months before all our services turn off. Like, what are you going to do? Um, you know, you those kind of things, whilst it seems incredibly unlikely, nobody saw PARs going under either. So, um, yeah, it, it is a possibility that needs to be at least uh, in the back of your mind. Yeah, it's true. And I think what's what's annoying, though, and what's, what kind of is one of the catch-22s is that the vendor lock-in is actually one of the pros because of the fact you get to reap the rewards of what that one that what they are doing whereas you know you say like you know oh can i transfer this over to another provider well they don't provide that you know like you're you're using the things that have its strengths you know like dynamo and things like that you're taking advantage of what that provides and if everyone provided that you know have any standards it would take years for them all to reach consensus of what's right so you kind of do have to tie yourself into things to be able to get and take you know take advantage of it yeah absolutely and and it's only the same as you know picking a database or something mm. it's, it, it, there are so many how many rms have we we've seen that have tried and failed so sometimes you just have to own it <laughs> yeah exactly and 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 it's even things like i mean dynamo db came around actually a surprisingly long time ago um and i don't know if i'd say they sort of started the NoSQL um trend but they were they were certainly in there uh, you know near the start uh, and now look at how many different solutions there are out there, how many different databases, which all have their pros and cons. And is a like everything in life, you know, try and pick the right tool for the job. Much they hate that phrase, um, but it's it, it is something. It's very applicable here, though. Yeah, try and consider. And and actually picking the right tool for the for the job is you know using our good friend PHP. You you came on my radar actually because of the serverless PHP project that you released on GitHub. And I'm just wondering, kind of like what what does it encompass, and what drew you to make it? So, like I said, I've been sort of following Lambda and things for for a long time. But my my day job is is PHP uh, pretty much through and through. I mean, we dabble with other things, but it's so it's very very much PHP. Um, and the big blocker was that uh, AWS Lambda doesn't have native support for PHP, which made me you know that was that was that was difficult. It made yeah made a sad Andy. So I, I've been looking around and. Uh, evaluating various different languages because we really had some good use cases for for using lambdas and uh, and and by playing with all the different languages, I then 
uh, came across some uh, some shims really some some things that people have made so that, like go is also not supported natively but someone has managed to make a little shim which kind of bootstraps through python uh, and then gives you what feels like a native environment to do go pro- programming in on lambda and uh, there was a there was another chap uh, zero sharp who had kind of done a bit of a proof of concept of oh maybe we could do the same for php um, now his proof of concept was sort of fairly basic and it, it, it but it did prove the point that you could run a PHP executable and the, uh, and the language on a Lambda. So then that got me like really excited and thinking, okay, now I can use the language I'm most familiar with. And more importantly, all the tooling and components and the community that I'm used to and, uh, you know, are actually really good uh, and, and take that and use this new technology as well. I think this is something which like this slight aside, lots of people, whenever you say, oh, you know, I'm a PHP developer, you, you see their eyes kind of like oh, yes. a little bit and you get the the, the sort of slightly... Oh, PHP, around. you're still around. Oh. Um, and, uh, and and all of a sudden you can you sort of have this feeling like maybe they're looking down on you a little bit. But I think that, that's probably just, it, it has a, I guess it still has a little bit of a bad reputation. But that's, I, I think that's from years and years ago. Uh, and no one has really sort of looked at it so much recently. It's just cool for it to be uncool. But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, it's a it's a pretty quick language. Um, it's got, I think, the tooling is is my is the biggest thing for me, you know, and the community strength around it all. Um, Symphony and all the things sort of built on its components are fantastic. Um, and things like PHP spec, BHAT uh, for all testing uh, is is they're just so good. So I wanted all that, and I wanted it on serverless. So this was a this was a Christmas project uh, last year actually. Um, seems oddly the only time I actually really seem to have to muck about with things. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I, I took what what Zero Sharp had done and, and and took the principles of it and then uh, tried to enhance it so that it would feel very much like um, it was a native execution, the same way as Java or Node um, or, or Python is on Lambda, um, because w- with the intention being that. When AWS hopefully finally support it natively, your code will just sort of slot in, and it won't really need any awesome. any major changes. So that that was the that was the broad thinking behind it. No vendor locking from you. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So so in in terms of uh, I guess how it works, if you're interested. Yeah, the, I mean that's one of the things you know because I think for me like I, I've been playing around with a little bit of Lambda, and then I realised through actually your thing, I was like, hang on a minute, he's running PHP. It means he can you you can run you know native compiled code, and I started playing around with things like socks and stuff to mess around with audio. So yeah, how did you get around to actually compiling PHP then for Lambda? Yeah, so so the way the way this works is I'm using Node as a as a shimmer as a bootstrap. But- I sort of mentioned that term a few times. What that really means is when it gets executed, it's actually executing some JavaScript first, and then that JavaScript executes a PHP executor. So Lambda thinks it's a Node.js app that you're just doing whatever in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and when when I am executing the PHP binary, uh, I give it the same environment variables that, that Node had when it started, so all that stuff sort of passes through. And I'm also using sort of Unix uh, file descriptors to be able to pass the right information back and forth. So using like uh, like standard out, I just decided to use as the return thing. So uh, when PHP does like a print or an echo or something, that goes back to, to the JavaScript and it interprets that as a response uh, and then sends that back, sort of JSON encodes it and it all gets sent back. I use uh, standard error for the log line. So every time I use sort of a standard monologue uh, setup in, in this particular shim uh, in PHP, that just streams everything to standard error, which the node process picks up and then can stream it into the native logging, which will go to CloudWatch logs. Uh, and finally, the last thing is on AWS, you're provided with this context object, which gives you a lot of static information about the context in which you are executing. So that'll be things like how much memory you've got to play with and, and, and things like that. But it also has a method on there, which you can call to find out how long you've got left before your execution time is up. And I was thinking about this as like, ah, how am I going to get that to work in, in PHP? Yeah. Like, it needs to... Bi-directional communication. How, how are you going to do that? Go back and forth. Uh, so so I, I opened a, a third file descriptor. And all that really does is just it just sends a character uh, on it. The PHP sends a character on that file descriptor over to, uh, over to Node. Node notices that there's a... a 
a character there executes the, the the native method, gets the response from that, and then sends it back over that pipe. So actually, it's not that complicated the way it's it's really working. But what it does mean is that once you're in PHP, it does feel like you're actually executing the native the native function. So that's that's what it's that's what it's doing. I think the other part is that you've got to get the PHP binary in there somehow. That's it, yeah. And so you're running. I mean, I I have a, a Mac, so I'm running on OS X all day. MacOS now, and and you know other people are going to be running Windows or whatever. In Lambda, what they're running is Amazon Linux, so it's that their particular flavor of Linux. So your PHP binary that works on your Mac is not going to work on on uh, Amazon Linux. So what we had to do to get around that is uh, actually use Docker to sort of take an Amazon Linux uh, Docker image, then build PHP inside that image and get the binary back out, and then you can kind of package it up with a binary which won't work on your local system, but obviously will work in Lambda. And so that gets pushed out as well as all your code. So that's that's kind of the way it all sits together. Really cool. And I really like kind of your API around it. And there's, you know, the decisions made there because, you know, it, it, it does seem like quite a hard task actually to kind of get around it and, you know, quite an interesting task. Yeah. So I I, I think with, um, in, in terms of the, the communication between, between the two, that was, yeah, I mean, I guess I just made some decisions and it seemed to work. So that was that was great, and I was quite pleased with that. Uh, in terms of making it feel native, I I went and took the the Java. I took as mu- as much from the Java um, native documentation as I sort of felt was necessary to try and make it feel as close to that as possible. Because in my mind, the PHP looks probably most similar to Java out of the languages it supports. Um, so that's kind of the way the way I went. Um, with a few exceptions uh, here and there, which which are more like the JavaScript one because we don't need the same strict typing. But that that was that was sort of broadly the approach that I took. So what what, what about drew you then to use Node.js then, other than like maybe Python? There wasn't really a. I wish I could say there was a good reason. <laughs> there wasn't. Everyone likes JavaScript. I, I'll understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 JavaScript's one of those things, particularly on Node, which because of the asynchronicity of it, I I just always get a little bit like bogged down it takes me a little while to get my mind in the right place again after i've been doing php um all day just to try and like get what's going on um and that, that gear shift is quite difficult so why i use that rather than than python I, I don't really know it just it seemed to be the sort of i could see how to do it quite easily um even though my i'll be the first to admit my javascript skills are not uh, like exceptional but i could kind of see how to do it fairly easily so that that was that was where i started from i think in in retrospect you know maybe python actually would have been a better choice from reading around it seems like python actually boots slightly quicker than the node does but again we're, we're probably talking about a matter of a handful of milliseconds i think that's it isn't it because i was i was gonna mention that like maybe you know maybe playing around with python you would get some benefits there but like you say like because that one thing actually from your talk which was really good was you went in depth into like how you know the performance of it and how it actually kind of relates i'm just wondering maybe you could speak about a little bit about the performance. So that, that, that's a that's a particularly interesting point and the i think the difficulty here is that PHP, uh, you're actually having to start the binary. Ultimately, on every request, it has to get booted and go. And what that what that means is that it's going to take a fair bit of CPU time and a fair bit of memory to get going. And that, uh, unfortunately, has quite an overhead. Um, so if you're running on the smallest lambdas, which are like 128 megs of memory, and then that's proportional to the amount of CPU you get, so that's like the least CPU lambda you have, then I was seeing some overheads like for just doing a simple hello world on php versus a simple hello world on native node that was actually being like maybe getting on for 200 milliseconds of overhead uh, just to do that which is which is no good when node can execute it in like 20 milliseconds you know that's that's a huge huge cost that you're paying but the good news is as you go up uh, in memory and therefore also in cpu uh, that cost comes down um so once, once I got to about uh, the, the the gigabyte mark um, in terms of memory, uh, that's where it seemed to sort of flatten out, and and then you're starting to pay maybe you know thirty to forty milliseconds boot time. I should say this is all with PHP seven point one that I was dealing with. It I understand seven point two actually has some some performance improvements in it, so it might be that. You know, this actually gets a little bit better. Your mileage may vary, as they say. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting, and you know, it is also that thing of like 
yes, at a benchmark level, maybe it's not as performant, but maybe for the fact of the tooling and actually the development, and you can actually bring some of the services and libraries that you already have brought in and you want to take advantage of the serverless and the, you know, the function as a service paradigm, uh, you know, the benefits outweigh the cons there. Uh, and, and not moving to another language and having to understand another language and yeah, re kind of learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and the vast majority of, of um, you know problems and applications are not ultra performance critical. Otherwise, we'd all still be writing like binary or assembly or something. That's it. <laughs> there's there's a there's a big cost to writing that um, in terms of man time, uh, and and you don't want to have to deal with that. <laughs> like it's it's much better to to be in a place where you can be really efficient as a worker, and because that's how you're going to deliver that value out. Um, as quickly as possible to, to your users. And and yeah, if you are in a performance critical Lambda, then yeah, PHP is probably not the right choice, not at the moment at least. Um, but the majority of the time you can you can you can cope with a few more tens of milliseconds. Mm. And you just design it in that way. And actually one thing with it is like do you do you envision that AWS will in the future support PHP like Azure does and I don't know if like OpenWhisk maybe does? Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty sure OpenWhisk has some support for it. Um, I, I can't speak for Azure, but but yeah, I would I would really hope that they they will support PHP in the future. I suppose for them it's the maintenance of it, isn't it? That's the hard part. I mean, they already support two versions of Python and Node, and then they support Java, which then supports all the JVM languages, and then C Sharp, which then supports all of the the CLR languages. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I can understand that, but then at the same time, like. The whole point of a Lambda is that it, it starts up when the request starts, it does some processing, and it dies off, which sounds an awful lot like a PHP lifecycle to me. That's exactly. Doesn't it make you scream when you think this is exactly what PHP was made for, was you know this very short HTTP request kind of lifecycle? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so with that in mind, I, I think the, the biggest challenges they're probably going to have is that with PHP, there's still a lot of C extensions which are sort of compiled into the binary if you need them. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how they go about supporting everything that everybody wants. But if they can make that work in an efficient way and just make sure that it sort of broadly supports the the important extensions, then then yeah, maybe maybe that maybe that is the the sort of the way they'll end up getting it out there. I, ultimately, like you always hear these stats about how much of the internet is powered by PHP. Now I know most of that's going to be like WordPress blogs and and other nonsense like that, which probably and Facebook. <laughs> well, Facebook's a great example, yeah. Although I suppose it's hack now, isn't it, rather than mm. more PHP? But uh, but yes, it, like you, you hear all those stats. There's a lot of PHP developers kicking around. Um, I, I think it would be a little amiss of AWS to to sort of overlook them, um, to be honest. And, and then with that, then like you know, what kind of uh, first actually, have you actually used this in production? Have you found because was this a use case, obviously a Christmas project? Then did you actually bring this into the workplace and actually get something shipped out using this? Yeah, 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 absolutely. We've got um, it's been running for. I guess about nine months now uh, in production with an earlier version of of, of my my project that's that's on GitHub and is open source. Um, it's kind of moved along a little bit since then, but uh, we've not really had too much need to change this service that's been running. So it's it's been sat there sort of dutifully doing its job for for a long time. And, and brilliant, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And again, this this was something where the raw performance didn't actually matter. Um, it was it was good enough um, in terms of performance, and, and that and that all sort of worked out really nicely. That's cool. And then do you use like the, because I suppose I'm thinking like, you know, you can use like the AWS SDK that's provided PHP one and stuff like that to in- interact with any AWS stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in this case, we're actually doing something more simple than that. So it's, it's really just sort of using Guzzle to to make various um, requests. But uh, but yeah, there's there's no reason why you couldn't just then start using all the all the native PHP components and packages that you're used to. Nice. And then what is like kind of your future development with this project? What, what, what kind of things would you like to see happening by you or by anyone, you know, who is willing to help? Yeah. So I think that there's, there's two trains of thought that I've got at the moment, which is the first one is, is like keeping it pure to the way that uh, Lambda is kind of designed to be, which is that you, you shouldn't be trying to like get your whole express Lambda thing going and, and having the full symphony full stack going or anything like that. It really should be um, something which doesn't even understand that it's HTTP coming in. It's just, you know, data in, data out. And so that's the, the first line there is that I want to be able to make this um, sort of a little bit more easy to get going with. So there's some documentation there. There's some testing that needs sorting out. Uh, and I also would like to experiment a little bit with the performance end of things because 
as we were talking about earlier, those containers do actually last for a little bit of time. So rather than having to spin up a PHP binary every single request and then kill it off and do the same thing again, I kind of think that, well, why don't I spin up, say, PHP FPM um, at, at, the, at the start? And then that stays warm as well, which I, I don't really see why that wouldn't give me some, you know, uh, some performance benefit, at least for the, the warm starts. I mean, the cold starts probably going to be just as bad. But um, if I could get that to work, that would be that would be really, really good. Um, so I think that's that's the that's the big thing on, on that side of it is to just try and address that performance. There's also been calls from uh, from a few people in the community to make it a little bit more like the Java uh, implementation. So instead of just getting like essentially an array in as your data uh, when you when you get invoked, uh, it would actually come in as uh, certain object types, so you can actually have interfaces to to drive everything, which might make discovery of the data structures a little bit easier. And testing, I suppose, and things like that would be a bit more contractual. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit of performance overhead, though. Oh, yeah. By millisecond, again, milliseconds, but you're having to generate these classes just for maybe possibly using them. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, the, yeah, there's always pros and cons to these things. Um, so it might be that maybe I think I think the way the Java one works is actually all of those interfaces are kept in a separate repository which you can pull in. So maybe that's the way to solve it. Like if you want it, yeah, bring it in, use it as a component. That gives you all that all that contract if you want it. If you don't want it and you you know you want it to be a little bit quicker, then yeah, great, let's not bother. And I think the the, the other side of it is actually thinking about the whole like let's get Symphony full stack running um, and make this feel like a like a web service rather than like a just like a function. It's great for adoption to do something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because people are going to feel really comfortable in that space. There will be definitely a number of problems that need solving. Um, I mean, the, the the first one that I, I came across was uh, was an issue raised on on, uh, on the project, which just said, "Oh, I've tried to use like the header function, the built-in header PHP function." <laughs> like, ah, yeah, you're not really you're not in a request context. You're just yeah, so so I think that there's definitely some demand there for that. So it, it it kind of feels like really they're probably two separate projects, um, and and I guess would probably split them apart for that reason. But it would be really cool if you could do like composer install serverless PHP and 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 away it goes, you know, and just sort of build brings in all the components and things you need and uh, and gets you set up. That that'd be really nice. So yeah, I've got quite a few ideas around that. Um, it's, a, it's about finding the time and it's about finding you know. Hopefully there'll be some of the people who are sort of willing to to know, you know donate a little bit of their time as well and, and get this thing uh, really off the ground. Absolutely, no, it's a great idea and it's a great project, and I really you know admire you for you know getting it off the ground because it is something that I think we all really you know especially if you're looking at serverless and it's not just you want to bring the all language you know it's like oh I know PHP so I want to bring it you know like it's the fact of you say the tooling the community around it and the fact that it is actually a viable choice for something a viable choice for something like this like if you can have Java as a viable choice PHP is definitely a viable choice for it yeah 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 absolutely. I want to say that thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and it's been great to chat all these uh, about all this serverless stuff with you. No, no, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. No problem, man. I'll definitely have to do it again some other time when uh, the projects, you know, more development on the project and whatnot. And when server, I mean, the nice thing about AWS and serverless and all these type of things is it, it grows every month. There's always new things going on, so I'm sure there's uh, scope for another another podcast in here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode, and I'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three devs and a maybe.